This is your boy Dak from the 410 Gaming Podcast, and you are currently listening to the California Dreaming Podcast on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything that you want it to be, you're going to need a little bit more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content, the most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you without taking up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up. And the first month is on me. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, use promo code DREAM and you've got no excuses. And now, on to the show. Warning, this episode contains details of gun violence and some details regarding sexual assault and may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Also, this is not the episode that I had planned for this weekend. The original case I was working on turned out to be much longer and more complicated than I first thought, and so I decided to take an extra week to research and prepare the notes for that one. And that being said, this case has been one that I've been thinking about for quite some time, and my apologies in advance if this story seems disorganized in any way. I literally threw it together in one day. So hopefully it comes across clearly and makes sense. Okay, here we go. Michelle O'Keefe was an 18-year-old from the Antelope Valley area of California, located in the northernmost part of Los Angeles County, and it makes up the western part of the Mojave Desert. Michelle was very popular in high school, a star cheerleader, very studious. She excelled at math having finished all of her college math requirements before even having graduated high school. And what's more, she completed high school a year early. When she graduated, her parents gifted her her dream car, a 260 horsepower, beautiful blue Mustang GT. She was a college student, majoring in computer science, and she found work part-time as an extra in television and film. That was her dream. She was an aspiring actress. But her parents insisted all that was fine to pursue as long as she continued her education. This was the dawn of the new millennium and life was so, so good for Michelle. Everything was on track. Things couldn't be better. On February 22nd, 2000, Michelle and her friend Jennifer Peterson had an opportunity to be extras in the filming of a Kid Rock music video in Los Angeles, which was at least a 60-mile or 96.5-kilometer drive. 
So the girls decided to park Michelle's car at a Palmdale commuter park and ride and carpool together in Jennifer's car. Before she left, Michelle's mom reminded her that she had classes that evening that she did not want her to miss. Michelle promised that she would make it back in time for class. She purposely parked her Mustang under a light post when she arrived at the park and ride. She knew that she would be getting back after dark and wanted herself and her car to be safe. And she and Jennifer made the drive to Los Angeles in Jennifer's car. The Kid Rock video shoot took approximately six hours and the girls made it back to the park and ride according to cell phone record pings around 9.22 p.m. By this time in the evening, the park and ride was mostly empty. Jennifer pulled up next to Michelle's car, at which point Michelle got out and took her belongings out of Jennifer's vehicle and placed them in hers. Michelle had with her a change of clothing because she went to the filming of the music video wearing the kinds of clothing that she would wear if she was going clubbing, stuff that would be inappropriate for college classes, which she planned on attending after the video shoot as she promised her mom that she would. Now, I'm not sure that she would still have time to make it to class at this point. I don't know how close or how far away the campus was from the park and ride. Many of us, I'm sure, have taken night classes at college, and the latest classes ever ran for me was until 10 p.m., and the instructors usually dismissed us by 9.45 or so. That being said, Maybe there was time for Michelle to make it to the end of class, touch base with the instructor, get any necessary materials, or turn in any work that she needed to submit. Other than that, I don't see her having been able to make it for the entire class session based on cell phone tower pings. Michelle got into her car and started the engine. It was at this point her friend Jennifer drove away once Michelle was safely in her car. If I remember correctly, a show that I watched some years ago in this case, I believe Jennifer saw in her rearview mirror that Michelle was reversing out of the parking space. I can't exactly recall that detail because, dreamers, if you try to look for anything on the circumstances surrounding this evening, you will find it very, very difficult to find anything about it at all. Even the show that I watched that covered the case has completely vanished off the face of the internet. And there's probably a reason for that, which we will get into a little bit later on. When Michelle pulled out of the parking spot, however, she did not leave the park and ride lot. She moved her car from where it was parked in the middle of the lot under that lamppost she drove her Mustang to a more remote parking space towards the north end of the lot and parked it where there was no lamp above her vehicle. So, why would she do this? It's largely been speculated that she pulled into a more darkened, desolate space in order to discreetly change out of her club clothes and into her more conservative college clothes. This totally makes sense, to me anyway. So... That leads me to think that Michelle still had intentions of trying to make it to class. Otherwise, would she have stopped the change if she was just going to go straight home? Yeah, maybe she would. She could have been uncomfortable. 
She could have felt kinda yucky after being in a screaming crowd of extras in a music video. That's what they had participated in. They were concert goers for the video with Kid Rock on the stage performing. So maybe she had perspired a lot or got bumped around into other people and just needed to get out of those clothes, you know? Whatever the reason, Michelle pulled into a different parking spot. Only she would know. And the only reason we know that she moved her car is because her friend Jennifer was able to point out that where Michelle had originally been parked wasn't the same place where her vehicle was ultimately found. And she did see Michelle backing up out of the space. Jennifer had driven off. She didn't see her actually pull into any other spot. Nor did she see anything that happened after that. At some point, Michelle's car was put into reverse, presumably by Michelle. Her car backed up and hit a planter behind her, where her Mustang ultimately came to rest. Why would Michelle suddenly reverse her vehicle and crash it in this manner? Because, dreamers, someone approached her vehicle, armed with a 9mm handgun, and that someone shot Michelle four times in the face and chest. Raymond Lee Jennings, a former Army National Guard sergeant and Iraqi war veteran, was working that night as a security guard in the park and ride, and he was not armed. While on his patrol, he heard a car alarm sounding at approximately 9.30 p.m. He began heading in the direction of where the sounds were coming from, and on his way there, he heard a gunshot. And following that, he heard several more gunshots. At 9.32 p.m., Ray made a radio call to his supervisor, Iris Malone, to report to her that he heard gunshots being fired in the park and ride. She drove to the parking lot and arrived at the scene at approximately 9.42 p.m. She saw Ray's vehicle parked near the entrance of the parking lot, but she did not see Ray. Another two or three minutes passed while she waited for Ray, as she did not know his location. When he finally came up to her vehicle, and to her, it appeared that he had emerged from behind his car and approached her patrol unit, he pointed out to her the blue Mustang, which was about 400 feet away from where they were located, and its rear wheels were resting in a planter. Ray told her that the car's lights were on and the engine was running, and the supervisor could see that the lights were on the vehicle, but she could not hear the engine from her vantage point. Ray's supervisor instructed him to get into her patrol car and go with her where the Mustang was parked, but he refused to do so, so she drove over there by herself. As she got closer to the running vehicle, she could see that the driver's side door was open and Michelle's left leg and foot was outside the open door. She drew closer to Michelle and using her flashlight, she looked for signs of life, but found none. She then radioed back to Ray and instructed him to call the police and then to come over to the location of the Mustang. Now this is where things get a little murky, because as time went on, and the more and more Ray Jennings would speak to investigators about the things he purportedly saw that evening, 
the more and more they began to think that he had more to do with what happened to Michelle O'Keefe that night than he was actually letting on. And today, we are going to take a look at all of the things Ray Jennings had to say and all of the things that he did. In this 44th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the man who knew far too much. After Ray contacted law enforcement, he did as he was instructed and went over to where the car had come to rest. Now remember, there was at least 20 minutes that had passed between the time Jennifer left the parking lot and the time Supervisor Iris Malone arrived in her patrol unit. And this is the window of time that only Ray Jennings would be able to account for his whereabouts, what he saw, and what he was doing. What I can tell you from the television show that I watched that I no longer can look back on because it's gone, is that when it was over, I was left feeling like Ray was guilty of murder. And why was that? Because of those 20 minutes in his police interrogations, he would describe what he witnessed. And from his vantage point that he was describing, it would be actually kind of difficult to see from the distance that he said he was from the actual shooting. And as his interrogations were on, the more suspicious of him investigators became. And I will get into all of that a little bit later. So Ray walked over to the Mustang, as he was instructed to do, and when he got close, he said he actually kicked a shell casing. He picked it up, and he did not have his flashlight with him, so he used his supervisors to look at it. He concluded and told her that it was a 9mm casing. The two of them stood near the Mustang while they waited for law enforcement to arrive, and at 9.49pm, Sheriff's Deputy Billy Cox arrived at the scene. He parked nearby, got out of his patrol unit, and spoke to the supervisor, who he said was standing about 15 or 20 feet away from Michelle's vehicle, at which time she reported to him that someone had been shot. The deputy came closer to the driver's side of the car, and it was at this point that he observed that the engine was running, the manual transmission was in neutral, which is why it came to a rest. One of Michelle's breasts was partially exposed from the tube top that she was wearing, which might be an indicator that she was in the middle of changing her clothes when she was attacked. Or maybe it's not. It's hard to say. Deputy Cox attempted to look for a pulse, but did not find one, and he also shined his light into her pupils, but they remained fixed. Michelle was gone. It would later be determined that Michelle had other injuries, not just gunshot wounds. She had suffered a blunt force trauma to the head, which appeared to be caused by an object, not a fist. This initial blow to her forehead was significant enough to have caused Michelle to be dazed, but not hard enough to completely knock her out. And this is likely when Michelle attempted to flee putting her vehicle into reverse and accelerating backwards. And it was then that she was shot four times. The first shot was to her chest, through her upper left breast, which was fatal. It was determined that the weapon had been in contact 
with the jacket Michelle was wearing over her tube top. So this is where I begin to think that Michelle hadn't quite gotten started on changing her clothing yet. Remember I said that her breast was exposed from out of her tube top. But why would she be trying to take off her top if she was still wearing her jacket? That doesn't really make that much sense to me. If you're going to change your top, you're probably going to need to take your jacket off first. And this information lends to the theories behind the motive for this crime, that perhaps it may have been sexually motivated and escalated to murder very quickly. As this is one of the places where I think Ray begins to get caught up in this murder. You see, dreamers, by all accounts, Michelle was a very safety-conscious person, which is why she initially parked her car under that lamppost, someplace well-lit. Her friend who dropped her off waited and watched her get into her car before she pulled away. She even glanced back and saw Michelle backing out of her parking spot. But Michelle pulled into another spot, supposedly to change, right? If she's in the car, in the dark, and alone, how likely is it that she would have rolled her window down? Her window was partially down, if I remember correctly. How likely is it that she would have rolled her window down for someone who approached her vehicle? Unless it was someone who could be trusted. Someone like a security guard who had a uniform and a badge on? Maybe she was in the middle of changing. Saw that someone, perhaps Ray, was outside her window and quickly threw her jacket on over herself but Ray would claim that he never got that close to her vehicle. That someone did. Someone close enough to cause a blunt force trauma injury to her forehead, then place a gun against her jacket and fire into her chest. And why was her door open and her leg partially out? Did Michelle do that on her own or did her killer open her door? Was she trying to get out? Was she asked to get out by someone in a position of authority like a security guard? Did she try to get out when she was struck in the forehead? It's hard to say. But if I had to guess, I'd say the door was open and she was partially out of the car after it came to rest. Because you can't accelerate and reverse a manual transmission with only one foot. You need one on the clutch and one on the accelerator. So, maybe Michelle, in her final moments of life, she put the vehicle into reverse, accelerated, crashed into that planter, knocking the car into neutral, attempted to get out of the vehicle, and died in the process, leaving her driver's side door open, one leg and one foot out. Now remember, I'm only speculating that if Michelle were approached by someone, it would have to be someone that she felt safe to talk to, like a security guard. But it could have been anyone who approached her car, and she just didn't think anything of it in the moment. When the first shot was fired into Michelle, it was fatal. But she would have still been able to remain conscious for at least a minute or so. However, she would certainly die within about five minutes.
She could have still been responsive. She still could have moved her hands and fingers. However, by the second and third shots to her left cheek and neck, which were fired from two to three feet away, there would not have longer been any possibility of hand or finger movement, and her pulse would have ceased. The fourth and final shot struck Michelle in the upper corner of her left eye. The theory at the time was that someone approached Michelle's vehicle while she was changing. The person who would have approached her may have mistaken her for a sex worker because of the way she was dressed. And Ray Jennings would even allude to this in his police interrogations. He told detectives, based on the way she was dressed, in his words, she looked like a prostitute. And we will get into Ray's interrogation as well a little bit later. So this theory came about that someone, perhaps even Ray himself, approached Michelle perhaps for a sexual encounter or the prospect of one, that the assailant for some reason became agitated in the moment. Maybe Michelle scoffed at the advance, and thus she was struck in the forehead with an unknown blunt object. It was then she attempted to leave, putting her car in reverse, and this is when the assailant opened fire, shooting her four times, and her car came to rest on that planter. The detectives on the case, Diane Harris and Richard Longshore, arrived approximately three hours after the shooting, so at approximately 12.30 in the morning the next morning. In Michelle's Mustang, they found her purse and wallet, in it were her credit cards and $111 in cash, so robbery was ruled out as a motive. But could someone have been interested in her car? It could have been very possible that the motive was carjacking. Someone approached her vehicle, surprised her, a struggle for the vehicle ensued, Michelle resisted, putting up a fight, so she was struck in the face with a blunt object. Stunned, she tried to reverse away, but was shot to death? Very possible. She had a very nice car, and according to her dad, she would put up a fight for it. Unfortunately, that's exactly the opposite of what we're always told to do, right? Just give them what they want and let them go. Detectives also found two expended projectiles and three shell casings on the ground between where Michelle had parked her car in that remote spot and where her car ultimately came to rest on that planter. It would later be determined that all five of those items came from the same weapon, a 9mm handgun. Detectives interviewed Ray in the early morning hours following the night the shooting occurred. He related that he was on foot patrol in the parking lot, and it was around 9.34 p.m. that he heard the car alarm, shortly followed by a gunshot. He took cover behind his car, crouching down. He peered over his vehicle from where he was positioned, and he saw Michelle's Mustang rolling backwards towards that planter. He said that he heard five more shots. He said that he could hear the car's engine as it was moving, but he also said that he did not see the shooter. 
This raised eyebrows. Detective wondered how he could hear gunshots, how he could see her car rolling backwards into the planter, but did not see any person. It's possible, though. It was dark, and Michelle's lights were on, so it would likely draw attention first and easiest. And he also said that his view was partially blocked by another vehicle parked nearby. He also said he didn't see anyone leave the area by foot or by car when the shooting stopped. So this would perhaps explain his apprehension about returning to where the car was located with his supervisor after she arrived. He would have no idea if the shooter was potentially still nearby. Ray would claim that the first time he actually saw Michelle was after he summoned law enforcement and went over to the Mustang after his supervisor directed him to do so. He said that he visually saw a pulse and that he saw her hands twitch. These were statements he made to investigators during his initial interview with detectives, which was videotaped. And this, what Ray had said about seeing her pulse, not feeling her pulse, but not seeing it. This means, I presume, he was able to observe some part of her body, perhaps her neck, closely enough where it was apparent that her heart was beating and he said he saw her hands twitch. This detectives found troubling. He said, quote, like her hand was twitching, just shaking like that, and he demonstrated by holding his hand out and moving it, like that or it was just popping up and down. I could see a slight pulse in her neck. It was real light. I thought she was still alive, unquote. And there's more. It seems that Ray was able to offer up information a witness from several hundred feet away would not have been able to offer, beyond the pulse and the hands twitching. He told detectives from what he was able to observe in terms of Michelle's gunshot wounds that he was able to tell detectives the order that the shots were fired in, meaning that he could tell which bullets struck Michelle in which order. He said, quote, When I first seen her, the gunshot in her chest, to me, that looked like the very first shot that was fired. It was close range. That was very close range. Unquote. And he also described his observations as to the theory of the trajectory of each bullet fired. So, suspicious or knowledge from personal experience. Well, detectives were suspicious because how does this guy, the security guard, know so much about a shooting he claims he didn't see happen? He was in the Army National Guard and he had seen combat and he might have at some point had a vested interest in topics such as guns, gunshot wounds, trajectory, things like that. I mean, don't many of us? I certainly do. But would I be able to look at a body riddled with bullets and tell you all the ifs, ands, buts, where, how, and whys of a shooting? No, I would not. That doesn't mean Ray wouldn't. 
Maybe he's just one of those kinds of guys that really wants to help or be a part of the investigation. I don't know, but he was giving too much information. More than detectives felt, someone who didn't do the shooting should have known. Michelle's dad, of course, was suspicious as well. Even going so far as to say that a minimum wage security guard doesn't have that kind of knowledge. To which I have to say in Ray's defense is, to me, kind of an unfair statement. The man did serve in the United States military and he's seen combat. To what extent, I don't know. But that really shouldn't be overlooked. As it is quite likely, he's probably seen lots of terrible stuff. But it was all this knowledge that he seemed to have of a crime that he would claim to have been a witness to that led detectives to suspect him to be the one who shot and killed Michelle O'Keefe. And that is pretty much all they had. Ray's own words. Dreamers, you must be asking yourselves, there's got to be other evidence tying Ray to the shooting, right? Well, not really. He did not have a gun on him the night that Michelle was shot. At least, he shouldn't have. Nobody witnessed Ray shooting Michelle. He did own a thirty-eight caliber gun, but the murder weapon was a 9mm handgun, and that murder weapon was never recovered. A sexual assault kit was performed on Michelle, and it revealed none of Ray's DNA on her body. And on Ray's security guard uniform, there was no gunshot residue, fibers having come from Michelle or her vehicle nor was there any blood splatter indicating that he had just shot someone in close proximity. And it would later be discovered, under Michelle's fingernails, the DNA of another unknown individual. There was a hair found on Ray's uniform that was not Michelle's, and there was a hair found on Michelle that was not Ray's. And if you look at pictures of Ray, he was bald. Despite the lack of physical evidence, Ray's status as a witness was quickly elevated to suspect. Three days after Michelle was shot to death on his watch, Ray Jennings quit his job working as a security guard at the park and ride. He told the company that he got another job working as a public relations person for a band. Never did he mention that he was quitting because of fear for his personal safety. And him quitting only compounded the suspicions detectives already had about him. Based on circumstantial evidence, in the absence of physical evidence, and Ray's ongoing and sometimes inconsistent statements as to what happened in the parking lot that night, detectives came to believe that the motive, as I suggested earlier, was one that was sexually motivated. That Ray had approached her, and things went bad quickly and he ended up killing her. His motive wasn't robbery, and it wasn't a carjacking. Nothing of Michelle's was stolen, not her wallet and not her car. But there would be information that came out later on that would contradict this. Investigators theorized that his motives were sexual, and this was not only reinforced by the fact that her breast was exposed, but also because he told investigators that night that he thought that she was a sex worker, 
based on her attire, and he told his wife the same thing. Two hours after the shooting, in a retelling to investigators, in his recollections of events, he said that he was patrolling the parking lot at 9.34 p.m. when he heard the car alarm. He turned ahead in that direction and heard a gunshot. Then he saw the Mustang roll backwards, and as the car rolled towards the planter, he heard five more gunshots. And he also said that he saw no one leaving or fleeing the parking lot. Two hours after that, he told another detective that he was on foot patrol in the parking lot when he heard the car alarm at 9.30, and in short order, a gunshot. He then took cover behind his car, looking up to see the Mustang rolling backwards, and then he said he heard five more gunshots, and he also said he heard the car's engine. He then said that he stayed by his car after the shooting ended because he was unaware of the location of the shooter and that he did not see anyone leaving the parking lot by foot or by car. One month later, on March 23, 2000, detectives interviewed Ray again at his home, and this time he told them he did not remember any details about the murder that he had not already disclosed to them. He repeated that he did not see anyone leaving the parking lot following the shooting. The detectives then told him that in the time since the shooting, they had received some information from someone who had been in the parking lot at the time of the shooting, Victoria Richardson. Victoria contacted detectives and told them that she had spoken to Ray the night of the shooting. Really? So, who was this Victoria Richardson, and why hadn't Ray mentioned her the night of the shooting? Well, she was in the parking lot that night, in a parked car, with three other people, near the northwest corner of the lot, smoking marijuana and listening to music. As they sat there, she saw a security guard pass by her car. Presumably this was Ray, as he was the only one on patrol that night in the parking lot. She too heard the car alarm, and then she heard some sounds she described as tapping sounds. A few minutes later, she saw a security patrol car drive by with its lights flashing, and it was at this time she and her friends decided to leave the parking lot. As they drove out, they did see the Mustang with its rear wheels up on the planter and Michelle slumped over the steering wheel. Victoria saw Ray and stopped to ask him what had happened, and he told her that he did not know. She and her friends then left, driving out of the parking lot. It wasn't until detectives brought this up in the March 23rd interview, a month after Michelle's shooting, that Ray confirmed that he did have this encounter with Victoria Richardson. He was able to provide an accurate description of her, and she of him, so their statements coincided with one another independent of each other. So why? Why didn't Ray bring this up the night of the shooting? Maybe for the same reasons why he didn't stop to question them about their presence in the parking lot? I mean, this was 2000. It was not legal for those four individuals to be parked at the park and ride to smoke marijuana in their vehicle. I do find it troubling that Ray didn't mention his encounter with this group of friends to detectives. I find it odd that he didn't tap on their window and tell them that they couldn't be parked there smoking. That's like a major part of his job, isn't it? Because 
Doesn't it seem like her story could kind of help raise versions of events as they happened? Seems like it. They seem to corroborate his version of what went down that night. But the fact that he didn't mention their presence in the parking lot probably made him look even more suspicious, as he may have assumed that they saw something and didn't want to alert detectives to a potential damning eyewitness. Either way, those four friends didn't seem to have all that much to add to the story. So two weeks after that interview at Ray's home, on April 7th, 2000, he voluntarily came in for a day-long interview with the sheriff's detectives to recount everything that he could remember about the evening of Michelle's murder. It was at this time that he told them that he checked his watch around 9.20 or 9.25, and this is when he heard the Mustang's car alarm sounding. Now, this is different from his previous stories, that it was a car alarm and not necessarily the Mustang's car alarm, and the timing is a little bit off as well. He then said that he began walking towards the Mustang. After about 30 to 40 seconds, he heard a single gunshot, and then he hid behind his car, and the alarm stopped. At this point, he suggested that maybe Michelle silenced the alarm with her fob, turned on the car's engine, and threw the car into reverse after having heard this gunshot. He then said that he stood up from behind his car where he was hiding and saw the Mustang rolling backwards, and this is when he heard the additional gunshots. Approximately 10 to 15 seconds had elapsed. And it was then he ducked back behind his vehicle and radioed his supervisor about the shots fired. His supervisor arrived a few minutes later, and she drove over to the Mustang. She then directed Ray to come over to where she was at with the car, which he did. And it was then, while he was walking towards his supervisor, that Victoria Richardson stopped her vehicle near him, a gray sedan, and asked if someone had been shot. He told her that he did not know. And he explained that the recollection of this was triggered a couple of weeks earlier when detectives asked him about her contacting them about speaking to a security guard in the parking lot that night when interviewing him at his home. He said looking back that he should have asked her to stay and wait for police to arrive, but it just didn't cross his mind. He then went on to describe what he saw when he arrived at Michelle's car. He borrowed his supervisor's flashlight to look around on the ground, and he saw a bullet casing and a slug that looked to be a 9mm. He then looked at Michelle and described seeing a faint pulse on her neck and that her hands were twitching and that her breasts were, in his words, hanging out. He said that his initial instinct was to remove Michelle from the vehicle and place her on the ground to try and administer CPR or first aid, but he opted not to do so, indicating that he did not want to disturb the crime scene. Dreamers, this really cuts both ways for me, this fact. If he saw that she had signs of life, as a member of the military, he would have been trained to perform life-saving procedures. And he said it was his instinct to do so. And it troubles me that he didn't. But if he had, he would have contaminated the crime scene. And he would have certainly gotten evidence all over himself. Because remember, no forensic evidence was found on him 
and that ultimately would work in his favor. And here's another thing I find troubling about Ray's story. One of the things that propelled him to the top of the suspect list, the pulse, the hand twitching. His supervisor clearly indicated that she, in the absence of Ray, as he did not want to accompany her to examine the scene, that she saw no signs of life in Michelle when she shone her flashlight on her. She was dead. And when Ray arrived, he didn't attempt to remove her from the car to perform CPR. Why? Because she was dead. And when the sheriff deputy arrived a few minutes later, he found her to be dead as well. So why would Ray say that he saw a pulse and her hand twitching? I don't know. But investigators would say that this was something that he saw because he was the one who shot her. He saw her pulse and he saw her hand twitch in the moments that she died, not when he stood there examining her with the supervisor some minutes later. I would surmise that he may have claimed to have seen these things, these signs of life in Michelle from afar earlier, but here he was placing himself there at the scene with the supervisor, seeing the stuff, and it directly contradicts what his supervisor had said, that she saw no signs of life. Ray also told detectives during this day-long interview on April 7th that it was his supposition that the first gunshot wound Michelle suffered was the one to her chest because it appeared to have been fired within close range. And it was later determined that this was true. The gun was in contact with Michelle's jacket. Then he went on to say, based on the location of her other wounds, that the shooter had likely fired through the partially open driver's side window and that the shooter must have been a good shot because there were no bullet holes in the car itself. Those shots went through the open window striking Michelle in the face and neck. Okay, dreamers, I need to stop here and talk about this again. I need to tell you, full disclosure, when I first saw this story, it was my belief that Ray Jennings shot and killed Michelle, based on all the stuff that he was telling detectives. So, I might be sounding somewhat incredulous in some of the things that we're going over here today. And I will tell you, I am very open to believing otherwise as we go along, and maybe by the end of this, I will be thoroughly convinced otherwise. Maybe we can talk about it in the discussion page. Maybe we'll be able to hash out the truth as well. But I have to be honest, especially in the early stages of the story, that I might be coming across slightly biased against Ray. But I am so open-minded because I just really don't know the truth which I can handle, by the way. So, the window being slightly rolled down. I don't know, you guys. It's after 9.30 at night. You're purposely parked in the dark and remote section of the lot in order to change your clothes. And it's cold outside. This is February. I searched the weather for that evening of February 22, 2000, and it was hovering around 40 degrees Fahrenheit or 4 degrees Celsius. So it was pretty cold. And her car had been sitting in that parking lot for hours. So it wasn't like it was warm inside when she got in. And she needed to change, which would make it even colder. So 
I don't think she'd roll down her window on her own. And it leads me to believe that someone approached her vehicle in a non-menacing, non-threatening way, and things went bad from there. That's something that bothers me about this case. If she were approached by an attacker who wanted to sexually assault or rob her, what are the chances that they would have done so in a way that she felt comfortable rolling her window down? But okay, I've been in my car when someone has come up to my window to say something to me, to ask for directions, to tell me my tire looks low on air, to tell me my latte is on the roof of my car, and I have cracked my window in order to hear what's being said to me, but only a cautionary amount, just as Michelle had. So it's possible she didn't suspect something bad was going to happen when a stranger approached her vehicle and she cracked her window. I've done it too. Many of us have. So Ray continues on, telling them during this interview that all of Michelle's bullet wounds appear to have been made by the same gun. Okay, this to me seems like a really weird thing to say, because he's kind of behaving like in the role of an investigator. And maybe he was genuinely trying to help. And maybe he does know what different gunshot wounds look like from different caliber weapons. But there just doesn't really seem to be any reason to bring it up. And all it did was make him look more complicit in the killing, don't you think? I mean, is the average person able to look at four gunshot wounds, one to the chest, one to the neck, and two to the head, and tell that the same gun fired them all? It could be speculated that because the gunshots were fired in quick succession and that they were all in relatively close proximity to each other, that it would make sense that only one gun was used. But still, weird to bring it up at all. He also again told detectives that based on what she was wearing, it indicated that she was a sex worker but he followed that up by pointing out that she had not been raped. Okay, it seems like an odd thing to point out, but whatever, he said it. He then went on about his experiences with death. He told detectives that he had seen death during his time in the Army National Guard. He had observed a soldier accidentally killed by machine gun fire when the soldier had a panic attack during a training exercise. He also said he had witnessed a drill sergeant die in a mishap involving a grenade. Later on, he would admit that he fabricated these two instances of military-related deaths in order to impress detectives. Okay, so there it is. Ray is kind of a fibber. And we can take this one of two ways, dreamers. If you're like me, you kind of lean towards Ray's involvement and you want to call him out for being a big liar, liar, pants on fire, right? He can't be trusted. Nothing he says has any credibility. Lying to police, that's a big deal. But then, like I also said earlier, Ray kind of comes off like one of those types that wants to be a part of the investigation. And that's exactly how he comes across in the interview videotapes. He wants to provide information and theories. He wants to inject himself into the case. And this is exactly what he did. 
but he injected himself too much, all the way to the status of prime suspect. If he had just kept quiet, I don't think anyone would be looking at him suspiciously at all. And it was all of these things that he had said, inconsistencies in his statement, the incriminating circumstantial evidence that led investigators to believe that Ray was responsible for Michelle's death. And here is every single one of them. First, investigators found it implausible that Ray could not see the shooter. He said he watched the car roll backwards into the planter, but he never saw the shooter, who should have been right alongside the vehicle. Taking that shot that made contact with her jacket and the subsequent shots that were repeatedly fired at close enough range to hit Michelle without hitting any part of the car while it was moving. So how could he have not seen the shooter but saw all that he did see? Second, Ray said numerous times that he saw no one leaving the parking lot after the shooting. But this was contradicted one month later by Victoria Richardson when she contacted investigators about her encounter with Ray. She was leaving the parking lot. He saw her. He talked to her. And he would only later admit this once confronted with these facts. So he did see someone leaving the parking lot. Another lie? Or, like he said, slipped his mind. I don't know, you guys. If I heard gunshots and you see a group leaving the scene in their vehicle, wouldn't you want to get their information as potential witnesses to the event? The only reason I think you wouldn't want them contacted as witnesses is because you'd be concerned that they saw something incriminating. They really didn't have anything to say against Ray when it was all said and done. But the fact that Ray didn't disclose their presence was a red flag. Third, Ray said that he wanted to stay near his car for cover and did not want to go with the supervisor to the Mustang because he was concerned that the shooter might still be in the parking lot. But a few minutes later, when she demanded that he come over to the Mustang, he walked over there relatively casually. He didn't take cover or do anything otherwise to take action to avoid being in the sights of the potential shooter. And this, detectives would insist, was because he was the shooter, and there was no real fear. Fourth, a couple of nights after the shooting, Ray claimed to have had an encounter with some individuals in a pickup truck. He said they approached him in their vehicle during his shift and asked him questions about the shooting. He became concerned because of their line of questioning, so he said he immediately contacted the sheriff's department to report the encounter. Ray said a sheriff's deputy responded to the call and arrived at the park and ride to speak to him. Ray said he provided the deputy with the partial license plate of the truck, and this enabled the deputy to find the truck and speak to its occupants. After the deputy spoke to these people in their truck, he returned to the park and ride to tell Ray that they were harmless kids and to not concern himself with it. But here's the thing, aside from this being kind of an unbelievable story, which I'll tell you why I think so in a minute. But the sheriff's department has no record of this call Ray said he made to them ever having taken place. And this is something the department would have kept a record of. So 
It has been theorized that Ray made up this whole story about contacting the sheriffs about the truck to throw off the investigation, to get them thinking some people in a pickup truck were responsible for Michelle's murder. And the reason I find this story to be unbelievable to begin with is because I don't think the sheriff would have been able to track down a truck with a partial plate that quickly and be able to find a group of people who Ray claimed to have spoken to him and then come back to report to Ray that everything was fine, no need to worry about those guys. Um, no offense to law enforcement, but they don't work that quickly or efficiently in non-emergency situations. And I seriously cannot believe that they'd come back to the park and ride to check back in with Ray. That just doesn't sound like the police. But as it seems, this call never took place. And Ray, again, is looking more and more like a fibber. Fifth, and we talked about this already, Ray claimed to have seen a faint pulse in Michelle's neck and her hands twitching when he approached the Mustang after a supervisor had. Medical experts would confirm that all outward signs of life would have already ceased by the time he had made it over to Michelle, and that it was a medical impossibility for him to have witnessed a pulse, or a hand twitching. So what investigators would say is that these things Ray had seen in these signs of life in Michelle happened in the moments after he shot her. So when he went and took cover behind his vehicle to radio his supervisor, it was his fear that Michelle was still alive and able to identify him as the person who shot her, and that was the reason why he refused to go with her in the first place to examine the vehicle. Once he was certain she was dead, it was then he followed the instructions of a supervisor and joined her at the Mustang. Sixth, Michelle had sustained a blunt force trauma injury to her forehead. It was standard for Ray and every single person patrolling the parking lots at night to carry a flashlight with them while making their rounds. But when Ray arrived at Michelle's Mustang to join his supervisor on the scene, he did not have his flashlight with him. Police were led to believe that Ray hid his flashlight because that was the item that he used to strike Michelle in the head and he did not want investigators to find it because of the potential evidence they would have found on it. Seventh, investigators purposely withheld information from the public, specifically certain details about Michelle's murder that were not disclosed but Ray seemed to know a lot of those details. For example, he knew Michelle had just come back from a Kid Rock music video shoot that had taken place earlier in Los Angeles. That was information that he could not have known unless perhaps Michelle herself told him when he approached her vehicle. He also knew that only one gun was used in Michelle's killing. There is no way he could have known that unless he was the one to have held the gun himself. He knew the caliber of the gun, and he was able to point out a divot in the pavement near the Mustang that he correctly identified as a misfire or an unplanned shot by the shooter before Michelle was struck. And how would he have known that that gouge in the pavement would have been there if he didn't put it there himself? Ray also correctly described the order in which the bullets went into Michelle's body, a fact that would later be confirmed that Ray was correct by the medical examiner at her autopsy. 
He also knew, right there on the scene, that Michelle had not been sexually assaulted. So, based on Ray being able to play the role of crime scene expert, ballistics expert, gunshot wound expert, and medical examiner, so on point, that he all but implicated himself by revealing things that only the killer would know. Finally, the person who shot Michelle seemed to be an experienced marksman. Michelle had three head wounds, and it would have been difficult for anyone to have shot her with that kind of accuracy as she was a moving target, rolling backwards in her Mustang. And investigators surmised that Ray had this very type of specialized training and practice during his service in the Army National Guard. Also, the sequence of the shots, the kinds of bullets that were used that he was able to identify, showed a high level of expertise when it came to firearms. The person who shot Michelle actually used two different kinds of bullets. The first one misfired into the pavement. The second one hit Michelle in the chest. Those two were hollow point bullets, which flare open when they impact their target in order to cause greater trauma to the body, as opposed to a full metal jacket bullet, which does not flare open. The last three were aimed at Michelle's head, and those three were full metal jackets. Military personnel are trained to shoot first at the upper body because it offers a large surface area to aim for. And if the shots to the upper body fail to incapacitate the person, they next shoot the person's head. So from that, detectives suggested that Ray, being in the military, had planned out this sequence. Two hollow point bullets for the body and three full metal jackets for the head. Incapacitate first, the kill shots to the head last. Now for me, that's kind of a big leap for this. But then, maybe that's the way some people load their weapons. I don't know. But you know what else? Never was a murder weapon found anywhere at the scene. So if Ray Jennings had been the one to do the shooting, he must have done some creative hiding because it was never recovered. And these dreamers are all the reasons that prosecutors had to suspect Ray. Nothing but circumstantial evidence. And to bring their case, it was going to take some time. Ray was redeployed after 9-11, and it would be another four years before he would be brought to stand trial for the murder of Michelle O'Keefe. Ray was arrested in 2005 and charged with one count in connection with her murder. He pleaded not guilty. And he would go on to face trial three times. Yes, three times. The first two trials were moved out of the Antelope Valley to the courthouse in downtown Los Angeles. And both of those trials, one in spring of 2008 and one in February of 2009, resulted in hung juries. The first, 9-3 to three in favor of guilt. The second, 11-1 to one in favor of guilt. After those two mistrials in Los Angeles, the case was moved back to the Antelope Valley for the third trial in 2010. 
The jury deliberated for a total of 12 days over three weeks before they returned their notice to the judge that they had reached a verdict. To the packed courtroom, the clerk read it. Not guilty of first-degree murder. The courtroom gasped. This was more than what they had gotten in the first two trials. Both of those were hung. The clerk continued and read, Guilty of second-degree murder. And the courtroom cheered. Michelle's family cried. And Ray sat emotionless. The judge would go on to sentence Ray to 40 years in prison. And to that, Ray had this statement to make to the court. As Christ is my Lord and Savior, I will stand before God, and this is one sin that I will not be judged for. I am at peace in my life, and I laugh and I smile, because I hold no remorse, because I didn't kill your sister. Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I will stand before him, and I'll stand before him with you, with you and with you, and will answer to this question. And away went Ray to serve his 40 years. It wasn't too long after. A campaign for Ray was beginning to grow. A campaign for his innocence. A campaign to free him. Lots of people who had seen the same TV show that I had seen, the one you can't find anymore. Many viewers began to strongly feel that Ray had been wrongly convicted. To be honest with you guys, I hadn't thought about this case at all until it was brought to my attention by the host of the Unfound podcast, Ed Denzel. He mentioned it to me many months ago, and the first thing that I said was, oh yeah, I saw this case on TV and I don't like that guy. And that's when Ed broke the news to me that I needed to take a look at his case again. I searched a few times, but I really couldn't find exactly what I was looking for. And what I was looking for was the show that I had seen that made me feel so certain that Ray was guilty. It can't be found, you guys, and I've looked. I wanted to start from that place where I had left off thinking that the man was guilty of murder, but I couldn't. And that kind of made me somewhat disinterested in the story. But I kept going back to it over the past few months, and nothing really jumped out at me. But this past week, I was working on a story for episode 44, and it was becoming such a long and complicated story that I decided to push that one to episode 45, and I scrambled to try to come up with something to fill the now vacant spot sitting at episode 44. And thus, Ray's story came to my mind again. So I decided to just move forward with the telling of his story for you guys. And here we are, with Ray, convicted of the murder of Michelle, serving a sentence of 40 years to life for a crime that he insists he did not commit. He filed all his appeals and lost. The California Supreme Court refused to review his case, and it seemed like all the chances of challenging his conviction were gone. 
But something was brewing beneath the surface for Ray. Not everyone thought Ray was guilty. A lot of people, actually. And soon, the very district attorney's office that convicted him was beginning to feel the same way. In October of 2015, Ray had a brand new attorney, one who was convinced that the wrong person was sitting in prison for Michelle's murder. He wrote a letter to the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Conviction Review Unit, 34 pages in all. It was a comprehensive argument that Ray Jennings needed to be released and that they had direct evidence of his innocence and of the many flaws in the prosecution's case against him. He described the investigators as having tunnel vision when they set their sights on Ray as the one who had shot and killed Michelle. What's more, they failed to look at other people who were in the parking lot at the time of the shooting. And then there was the issue that had to do with Michelle's wallet. Prosecutors insisted the murder wasn't a robbery gone bad because her wallet, which contained $111, was found in the car. But when the circumstances of the wallet were scrutinized, it was found that it had actually fallen between the seat and the center console, making it difficult to spot in the dark. And it was never brought out at trial that Michelle's cell phone was stolen. The letter worked. In 2016, the Conviction Review Unit of the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office, which had since reopened the investigation into Ray's conviction, began to lose confidence in the case that it had brought against him. The Conviction Review Unit, along with Ray's attorneys, had a date set for a court hearing to ask the judge to release Ray and presented a report detailing why he had been wrongly convicted. And it would turn out that the prosecutor's office that came to court that day in June of 2016 also asked for Ray Jennings to be released immediately from custody. They cited some new information that had come to light, new evidence that not only put Ray's guilt in question, but this new evidence also seemed to implicate someone else as having been involved in Michelle's murder. Ray's would be the first big murder case that was being handled by the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office New Conviction Review Unit that was set up for this specific purpose, reviewing and overturning wrongful convictions. And after the hearing, the judge ordered Ray to be released based on the documents presented at the hearing much of which I have already gone over with you. The lack of physical evidence, along with the circumstantial evidence investigators pieced together in order to convict Ray, they were convinced that Ray knew things that only the killer would know, which is honestly where I was at with the case. I just thought Ray knew too much. And I kind of still do, but knowing what we know now about Ray and how he admitted to embellishing his stories to impress detectives. It could very well be that that's all that was. All that talk was just him playing amateur sleuth. Anyway, it was now the belief of the district attorney that Ray was the wrong person. There is a suspect that was in the parking lot that night, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. 
There is very little information about that, though. Michelle's case had grown cold, remember? Ray wasn't arrested until 2005, so five years elapsed all the while. Michelle's parents did what they could to keep her case alive in the public consciousness. They commissioned billboards with Michelle's picture on them that said, Can You Catch My Killer? Michelle's case was featured on the TV show America's Most Wanted. Still looking for answers, the O'Keefe's were guests on the Montel Williams show and met with psychic Sylvia Brown. And we all talked about her in the episodes involving the Cleveland kidnappings of Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina DeJesus, remember? I told you Amanda Berry's mom visited the very same psychic on Montel's show, and she was told that her daughter was dead. And not too long after I put up those episodes, the Insight Podcast with Charlie and Allie, they did a whole episode about Sylvia. And I think most of us have come to the conclusion that Sylvia Brown is largely unreliable in terms of her psychic abilities. The O'Keefe's got their reading, though, and she told them that the killer's name was either Leon or Lee. And Lee is, in fact, Ray's middle name. So for them, this solidified their beliefs that he was involved in Michelle's murder. Michelle's dad was easily convinced that Sylvia was correct because even his own daughter had her own premonitions about her untimely demise when she had received her license plates for her Mustang in the mail and the plate numbers ended in 187, which is the penal code for homicide in California. Michelle had this feeling like it was some kind of bad omen that meant she was going to die an early death, which ended up happening. Because nothing was being done in terms of the criminal case against Ray, Michelle's parents decided to hire quite the high-powered attorney to file a lawsuit against the city of Palmdale, the security company that was in charge of patrolling the park and ride the night Michelle was killed, as well as against Ray Jennings. This is where that information came out about Ray having admitted to lying to detectives in order to impress them. And the attorney in the O'Keefe civil case, who was now the mayor of Lancaster, said at the time that he was going to solve the crime during the civil trial, and it was during his questioning of Ray that he became convinced beyond any doubt that Ray was guilty of shooting Michelle convinced by the same things investigators were convinced of, that Ray knew things that he shouldn't have known if he were innocent. I looked and I could not find any information regarding the outcome of the civil trial. And remember, I mentioned Ray was sent back to active duty in Iraq, but as soon as he got back in late 2005, he was arrested and charged with Michelle's murder. The former district attorney, who had initially filed the charges against Ray, said that his office at first rejected the case against Ray, but they decided to move forward after receiving a phone call from Michelle's parents. After speaking with them, he took a closer look at the evidence and decided to move forward with the case. He concluded that Ray's actions, his statements, that it appeared that he was hiding something, One of those actions being that he radioed his supervisor instead of calling 911 when he heard gunfire. 
He did acknowledge once Ray's conviction was overturned that the case was problematic from the start, particularly with evidence collecting at the scene. Remember I said there was no forensic evidence found on Ray's uniform? Well, they hadn't collected his uniform from the crime scene that night of the killing. They got it later. So if there had been any evidence on it, it was gone. As they see it now, there was a lot that wasn't done that should have been done. Until a judge officially threw out the case against Ray, he was going to have to be monitored at home. And that monitor would not stay on Ray for very much longer. In January of 2017, Los Angeles County prosecutors said that they agreed with Ray's attorney that his conviction should be overturned and the case against him be tossed out based on newly discovered evidence pointing to his factual innocence. And with that, the judge threw out the case. He said he would need a little bit more time to vacate the sentence, which he did about three weeks later towards the end of January. Michelle's mom and dad were there. They spoke at the initial hearing when the judge decided to toss the case. Her mom, Patricia, talked about Michelle. She talked about how she had a full head of black hair when she was a baby, who grew into a lovely young woman who treated everyone with kindness. And as for Jennings, her mind hasn't changed about him. Telling the court, Jennings is still guilty until proven otherwise. Michelle's dad, Michael, spoke also. His voice was cracking. He told the judge that he did not have to tell him how big the decision he was making was. He mentioned the original prosecutor's trial argument that Jennings just knew too much, too many details about the shooting for someone who wasn't guilty. Michael O'Keefe implored the judge to talk to the trial prosecutor and to look at an appellate court decision from some years prior that upheld Jennings' conviction. He told the court, From what I've seen, nothing has changed in my mind. He told the judge about the years he suffered over the loss of his daughter, and he also mentioned that his only other child, Michelle's brother, Jason, he died in November of 2014 of a drug overdose. He asked the judge to think about their daughter, an innocent girl murdered 17 years ago, and that he was relying on the judge to make the right decision. But the judge, with the district attorney's office even agreeing that the case needs to be tossed out, really had no reason to not do so. The prosecution has no intentions of pursuing the case against Ray, so it has to go. And with that, today, Raymond Lee Jennings is a free man, completely, totally, factually innocent. And he does have the right to sue for the 11 years of wrongful imprisonment, which he should be paid if he already hasn't been. The judge unsealed the letter from Ray's attorney in which he wrote that there were other individuals who had been in the parking lot that night and that had been involved in prior incidents similar to the situation in which Michelle was killed, 
crimes which also involved handguns. They had fled the scene before the sheriff's deputies arrived. And with this newly discovered evidence, it has been suggested that the subjects involved may have been members of a local street gang and that Michelle was killed in an attempted robbery. Suspects are not being named, but it went on to say that there was a 17-year-old woman who was driving a rented Chevy Malibu in the parking ride that night, along with at least two other individuals. The 17-year-old is a known gang member, and she would later be convicted of possession of a firearm as well as arrest for battery, which was throwing bleach into the face of her boyfriend. In 2015, she was accused of stabbing another boyfriend. She was charged with attempted murder, but only convicted of assault with a deadly weapon. For that, she was sentenced to five years in prison. So this dreamers circles me back to what I was saying earlier about Michelle sitting in that car alone in the dark, changing her clothes. Remember how I said that I didn't think it was likely that she would have rolled her window down for a stranger unless it was somebody trustworthy, perhaps someone wearing an official uniform like a security guard or a police officer. Well, what if that person that approached her was a young woman? Would Michelle have let her guard down for her? Yeah, maybe. But one thing I'd like to know is whose DNA is under Michelle's fingernails. It is male DNA. And she was at that music video shoot in a large crowd dancing around. So that DNA could have come from anywhere. Along with this young woman in the car that night was an 18-year-old gang member who is not being identified yet. Some months following Michelle's murder, he committed a home invasion robbery and a carjacking. And what kind of car was he caught stealing? A Mustang GT. At the time of his arrest, he was wearing an earring with a white stone that was similar to the one Michelle was wearing the night that she was murdered, one of which was missing. This person is currently serving a 31-year sentence. There was also something else that was called into question in the case against Ray Jennings. The role of the criminal profiler who was called to testify for the prosecution in all three trials against him, a gentleman by the name of Mark Safarik. He is an ex-FBI profiler, and he spoke about Michelle's case in an episode of Killer Instinct on the Clue channel. He spoke about how he worked to convict a man in the killing of an 18-year-old in a California park and ride. He highlighted the fact that there was no evidence left behind, no fingerprints, no DNA, no murder weapon, but the clues at the scene led him to develop a profile of the killer. The window that she had rolled down suggested it was for someone who was trustworthy. The fact that her breast was exposed insinuated a sexual motive was at play. But now that there is evidence pointing to a gang-related crime, Seferic rescinded his testimony as Ray's case was on its way to being tossed out. And with Ray's case now officially in exoneration, the reliability of criminal profiling was now being called into question 
as was Sapphiric's role in the case that was brought against him. Sapphiric was critical in winning the conviction, and he would continue to defend his analysis of the crime scene at the time, and that he still has his doubts about Ray's innocence. He said that he only agreed to withdraw his testimony in the case after he found out that the investigators had not spoken to every person who had been in the parking lot the night Michelle was murdered. But, even if he had that information, it would not have necessarily caused him to come to any different conclusions. As of late, profilers have come under scrutiny. Many in law enforcement credit them with assisting in investigations, but others have said it comes down to a bunch of guesswork. Safarik was asked to look at Michelle's case right before he retired. He studied crime scene evidence and wrote profiles for serial killers, sexual assaults, and stalking cases for 10 years at Quantico, Virginia. When he was asked to take a look at Michelle's case, investigators wanted two things. For his take on the evidence at the scene and an opinion as to the motive for her murder. Because the case against Ray was so flimsy, meaning that it was all circumstantial with zero forensic evidence on him or his uniform and the DNA under Michelle's nails didn't match him, he didn't say with any level of certainty that Ray was the one who killed Michelle, but he did point out all of the inconsistencies in his many statements to investigators and all of the things that he had said which caused investigators to consider him a suspect in the first place, and the things that he failed to mention, or the things that were impossible for him to know unless he was the killer, like seeing her body twitching or seeing her pulse, which would have been impossible unless he was present in the moments Michelle died. Safarik testified at all three trials, and the last one, he was the final witness. He told the jurors of his credentials that he has assessed at a minimum of 4,000 crime scenes, many of which were very complicated homicides, and that he has written many articles and book chapters on the subject of criminal profiling, and he told them that once you look at so many cases, you begin to see patterns of behaviors. He then went on to explain to jurors how he managed to eliminate certain possible motives for Michelle's murder. Safarik highlighted the fact that there was no significant history of gang activity at the park and ride, and Michelle's killing did not look like a personal attack, such as one committed by a boyfriend or a love interest. Michelle did not have a boyfriend at the time, and she did not have a criminal record. Robbery was dismissed as a motive because of her wallet being found in her car with more than $100 in it and that the car wasn't stolen. He noted that the parking lot was relatively well lit and patrolled by a guard. From the blood splatter evidence, it indicated that the attacker first confronted Michelle while she was outside of her car. He noted that the top was pulled down, exposing her breast. Therefore, he came to the conclusion the motive was related to an attempt at a sexual assault and that it turned very bad very quickly and it resulted in Michelle's homicide. He explained that he feels that the killer panicked when he attempted to assault Michelle because he knew that she would be able to identify him. It should also be noted that during the final trial, while the jury was deliberating for three weeks, 
They requested to be read back Safarik's testimony during the trial, and they ultimately convicted Ray. In essence, Safarik's trial testimony was used to legitimize the prosecution's theory about what occurred that night, meaning the police work, which was all circumstantial guesswork, was given validity by an expert criminal profiler. The episode of Killer Instinct aired about a month before Ray was ordered released from custody. In it, you could see actual footage of some of Ray's interviews with the sheriff's department as they were hoping to garner a confession. In the video, Ray can be seen wiping his forehead with his hand, at which point Safaric indicates that this small gesture is a big deal, stating, This is what poker players and profilers call a tell. So far, he's been bluffing, but his body language here says, I'm guilty. At the end of the episode, Safaric says, Like other killers I've known, he is also arrogant and narcissistic. Fatal traits that led to his demise. This was all his doing. Ultimately, he was responsible for it. Once Safaric learned of Ray's exoneration, of it, he would say, Jennings has a lot of problems that were never explained and are still very, very problematic. In the end, absent of an alternative suspect, I would still have to find much of Ray's actions, statements, behaviors, inconsistencies, and lies very disquieting. And I clearly remember feeling like the right man was in prison after I'd watched the story of Michelle's murder on Investigation Discovery. And once I was told he was exonerated, I almost didn't want to know how all of this came about because, to me, Ray Jennings did not come across as a sympathetic character. At least the show didn't portray him as such. But I finally visited the case wondering if my mind and my feelings would change by the time I got to the end of this. And it did. I still cringe at those interviews Ray had during his initial interrogations. It just all rubbed me the wrong way. And you know, on kind of a side note to all of this, I was kind of scratching my head as to the security at the park and ride. It's kind of off topic, but... I couldn't help but think that Ray wasn't really doing a very good job, like, at all that night that Michelle was shot. It really shouldn't be a place for people to hang out and smoke in their cars and loiter. It's a place that would normally have lots of people flowing in and out of, to catch the train or a bus or a carpool. They're always close to freeways, especially major interchanges. And Ray... I don't think he should have been on foot patrol, but driving around in his unit with his lights on, looking for people, loitering, and making them leave. I've parked at the park and ride, and security are always in their vehicles, driving up and down the rows of cars. And if somebody has no business there, they should be asked to go. And I just think Ray should have done more to ensure the parking lot was safe for commuters. The gang division, along with the sheriff's department, is currently investigating Michelle's murder, and they have uncovered new information. They won't name names, 
and they haven't briefed the O'Keefe's about it yet. But all they will say is that the new information does not point to Raymond Jennings. I hope that somehow, some way, investigators are able to finally put this case to rest so Michelle's mom and dad can finally move on from having to concern themselves with their daughter's killer being out there somewhere, roaming free. I feel so terribly for them. You bring these two beautiful lives into the world only to have one senselessly murdered for basically nothing. And then some 14 and a half years later, they lose their only remaining child to a drug overdose. And suddenly, you have no more children. And the torment of having to face the fact that the man you thought for 17 years was the one who shot and killed your child, as it turns out, wasn't the one who did it. And obviously, they aren't accepting that fact that he's been completely exonerated of it. And to have to contend with the very real possibility that the person who may have really killed her has been getting away with it all along, it's a terrible burden to bear. And that will do it for this 44th episode of California Dreaming. Thank you to Ed Denzel of the Unfound Podcast for reminding me of this story. It was definitely an exercise in opening up my mind and my thinking because I wasn't convinced Ray was innocent. I wasn't finding much online aside from a lot of self-congratulatory stuff from Ray's attorneys, which is deserved, but I wanted to start from how this all happened in the first place, much of which has been wiped away from our prying eyes. I do think it's important to know the path Ray went down to understand how he ended up where he is today. If we can't reach back and see how this man was railroaded, then there is no context to put his freedom in. What does it mean and why is it such a big deal? So hopefully I was able to give you somewhat of a comprehensive background about Ray Jennings' road to freedom. Please join the California Dreaming discussion page on Facebook where we post about the cases we cover, as well as other topics involving true crime. You can follow me on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And if you would like to help support this show, there are a number of ways you can do that. California Dreaming has created a Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to all of the bonus content that's already up. And there's typically one bonus episode per month. And this month, there will be a second bonus episode if you choose tiers $5 or above. California Dreaming also has a PayPal. If you would like to make a one-off donation to help with the creation of this podcast, our email there is californiapod at yahoo.com. That's K-I-L-L-A-F-O-R-N-I-A-P-O-D at yahoo.com. You can also help if you listen on Apple Podcasts by leaving a five-star review, or you can visit the merchandise store where you can get California Dreaming merchandise from TeePublic. You can find the link at www.orbitaljigsaw.com and click on the store link. California Dreaming is presented to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. Have you had the chance to visit our newly redesigned website? 
it's super pretty and you can find me in all of the other shows that have partnered with the network including the concession stand busted wide open super nerds uk the dirty bits historium is this adulting 41 owned film roast vox arcana and the podience a new show geared towards podcast hosts and aspiring hosts giving you all the ins and outs of the podcasting world and in the latest episode nick talks to cmo and co-founder of podchaser cole raven lots of good stuff for all of you hosts out there listening go check us out at www.orbitaljigsaw.com as always dreamers thank you so much for joining me and until next time sweet dreams <laughs>